an older man on his deathbed summoned for his four sons. The four sons have been living divisively amongst one another, struggling over selfishness and greed and other pursuits that life had thrown their way. But as he summoned them, he said, Boys, I have a task for you. And so he called them one by one into the room, starting with the oldest. And he said, Son, I have four sticks in my hand. And with all the power that you have, I want you to break it. So the oldest boy did everything that he could, uh, potentially with all of his might, and yet he struggled to break the four sticks. And so the second son comes into the room after hearing the despair and the frustration of the first one, and he grabbed the four sticks from his father's hand, and he did everything with his might to try to break them, and he couldn't. And so he walks out of the room, and the father summons the third son, the next of the youngest, and he says, son, I want you to do everything with your might to try to break these four sticks, and he couldn't. And so the three sons who had been in the father's presence had now left the room, And in their despair, in their frustration, they couldn't break the four sticks that had been bound together by their father. But watching, uh, as each of the brothers came out of the room, the youngest son laughed at their dismay. Matter of fact, he jokingly sneered at them and he said, Guys, I'm going to return having broke all of the sticks. And so as he enters the room, sure enough, he grabs the four sticks and he separates them one at a time. And he begins to break the sticks. The father summons them back in the room. And he says, boys, your youngest brother has broken all the sticks. And in their frustration and in their dismay, they begin to look at him. And he jokingly sneers and laughs at them. And then the father begins a valuable lesson. In which he says, Sons, though your youngest brother had sneered and joked and even broken all of the sticks, he did so in a manner in which you have been living. He goes, right now, the way that you live in contention amongst yourselves, the frustration, the divisiveness, the egos in which you possess, he says, you stand alone. And when I die in a handful of days, you will be at odds and at enmity with one another. But... If you'll realize that if you four will stick together, there will be very few things in life that will be able to break you. And your unity will be an encouragement to the rest of our family and to the families to come. Today, that's what we're going to be talking about. We're going to be talking about what it looks like to stand united. Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, and after three chapters of great theological principles, he goes, let me help you apply what you've learned. And so he's going to talk to us about what it looks like to stand unified. And so Stone Point Church, today the message is about what God desires for us. And so those that are joining us on the Edgewood campus, hey, we're grateful that you're there today. It is not uh, without God's design that you sit in the seat that you're in in this very moment. And so if you don't mind, let's pray together. And then we're going to dive into Ephesians chapter 4, and we're going to look at six verses this morning. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we love you and we are grateful to your Son. We are thankful that through the cross, through the width and the length, the depth and the height of the cross in which you have brought us life and forgiveness from our sin, uh, you have put us in the position to live a life 
that's worthy of the call in which we've received from you. And I pray today that we would understand what the call is and that we would seek to live in unity together. Something that's very difficult for us to do as individuals with other people around us. Something that's very difficult to do in the culture in which we now live in. And so God, we ask for your help. We ask for your wisdom and we ask for your grace. May you enlighten our hearts to see and to hear and to understand what you're saying. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to turn to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to begin in verse 6. I'm going to read through them, and then we're going to come back, and we're just going to dive in systematically a verse at a time. And so um, it just says, uh, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit of the bond of peace. There is one body, a one spirit, and just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And so here's uh, what... Paul wants the church in Ephesus to see. Uh, he begins in verse 1. He says, therefore, which simply says, um, because of what you have learned, because of uh, the example that you have seen in my letter to you thus far, in the previous three chapters of learning that everything we have, we possess in Christ, because of Christ, for Christ, as a result of grace through faith in Jesus, not of our works. God has united two men, Jews and Gentiles alike, to understand that we could be united together as heirs, partakers, and members of His body. And we're encouraged as you get uh, through the letter to the church in Ephesus by Paul to live like stars in the universe. In a sense, to let our lights shine brightly, not just before men, not just before God, but ultimately that all of the heavens would see how we live our lives. And as we think through that and we ponder those things, we know that Paul says, as a result of that, I want to urge you. And he says, as a prisoner of the one in which I am slaves, not to the Roman governor or to the uh, Roman senators or to the Roman guards, he says, I'm a prisoner for the Lord. For the Lord. And because of that, I want to urge you. And so he uses this word uh, urge, which is literally to, uh, to, to call or exhort. And he says, I want to urge you as a prisoner of the Lord myself to be a prisoner too, that you would walk in a manner worthy of the calling. And so when you think about that word uh, walk, literally it, it means uh, in the Hebrew, not in the Greek, uh, but just to live. In the, in the Greek there, it literally just means to make most of all of our time or the opportunities. And so he says, I want to urge you to not waste your time. I want to urge you to make sure that you're doing as I've called you to, that you would live in a manner worthy of the call in which you've been called to. And so what he's saying is, he says, I want to make sure that you are living life to the fullest. Make the most of all the opportunities around you. Seize those, lay hold of those opportunities and be all that God wants you to be. 
And the reason why is because our calling is a representation of something. And it's the word in the Greek uh, that means klesis, which literally means to be invited to the feast or to have a divine invitation of God. And so it's a representation of our salvation. And so here's what Paul says in verse 1. He goes, because of what you've learned in the previous chapters, I, a prisoner of King Jesus, urge you, a brother, a sister, to seize all opportunities, to live in a manner worthy of the calling of the divine excellencies of God, of His salvation, of His goal in your life, because that's what you've been called to. And so what he does there is he just says, hey, look, the goal for us to live in the manner worthy of the call of the gospel is to realize what it is that he's brought about in our lives. And here's what it is. He goes, you have, you have been given an invitation to God's divine feast. You have had salvation laid before you. So now take of the cross, deny yourselves, and follow Jesus. And as we follow Jesus, Paul writes to the church in Rome this way, in uh, Romans chapter 6, verse 1, he goes, we don't continue to sin that grace would increase. And so what he says is, he goes, as you seize opportunities before you, he goes, you realize what God's called you to, and you begin to live in that calling. For instance, a few years ago, uh, I was pulled over uh, here uh, in, in town, in Wills Point. And as I was pulled over, I had two little kiddos in the back, uh, to which this day they still haven't forgotten about me being pulled over. Um, and so I'm pulled over. I'm actually in my wife's vehicle, and they pull me over because I have a headlight out. And he asked me about it. Do you realize you had a headlight out? And I said, yes, sir, I do. And uh, I said, I'm actually on my way to get it fixed, in which... I'm sure that police officer in the moment is thinking, oh yeah, right, I bet you are. Uh, because um, that's what every pastor should say, right? Uh, yeah, I'm going to get it fixed. Matter of fact, I'm going there right now. Uh, but he basically said, I tell you what, I just wanted to pull you over to let you know about that, that your light is not shining brightly. And so I do encourage you to go get it fixed. And he urged me in that moment to correct course and to go take care of it, in which I actually was doing and did do. And so here's the crazy thing is, is what I could have done is I could have not taken his warning or the urgency in which he said, hey, go get that fixed. And I could have continued to drive around in my vehicle the first time he just says, hey, it's a warning. I'm letting you off. Just wanted you to know. But if I would have continued in that pattern of driving without lights, then guess what? He would begin to give consequences for where I am. For some of you, it's not that your uh, light was out. For some of you, you went through a school zone, you were speeding, and he, he, he gave you a warning. You wouldn't go through the next day going through the speed limit uh, with that zone again and, and what? Take advantage of that. So the idea is, Paul goes, listen, live in a way that you are worthy of the manner in which you've been called, knowing that God lives in you, that you are His, that you should shine brightly for Him. Make sure that you don't take advantage of what Christ has done for you. And so what he says is we ought to live in a way that pleases God. 
And then he tells us how to do that. Now, that's what's so awesome about this text is Paul doesn't leave, leave us wondering, well, what does it look like to honor God with our lives? And so he tells us, beginning in verse 2, we should honor Jesus with all humility. And when you look at the word all humility, it literally just means to be humble or to have a little view of oneself. Uh, to be humble means that you don't see yourself above the rest of the crowd. But not just with humility, but with also gentleness, we should begin to deal with people. And so when we think about gentleness, uh, we, we think about mild discipline disposition, or we think about meekness, uh, or what that looks. And that word in the Greek literally means uh, proutes, which means that we would be humble, that we would be kind, in a sense that we would be um, tender-hearted, that we would be gentle. Matter of fact, when you start thinking about the church and you watch how people interact in the church, or for that matter, out in the public, one of the things that you and I ought to take note of is that it's impossible for someone with a very high view of themselves to be kind and approach someone else with gentleness. And so I don't know if you uh, have ever been a part of a church where there was just this lady who was really mean. Um, I think in almost every church I've ever been a part of, I have a woman or a man that pops in my mind and I go, they were just mean, crotchety, mean, rude, condescending. They would rip someone uh, out uh, over running in the building or they might uh, get a hold of the church secretary after his service and they might belittle him in front of people because something in the bulletin was spelled wrong. I mean, you've seen it. You've been a part of a place where people did not exude humility and gentleness. And here's why. Because if you have a high view of yourself, it means that everything else is beneath you, including everyone. And if you have a high view of yourself, then it means that you can treat whoever it is around you the way you want because you are somebody. But here's what Paul says. When we live in a manner worthy of the call in which we have been called, we should approach people with what? Humility and gentleness. And so what that means is, is that if we have a high view of God, in a lower view of ourselves because of God, it means that we can treat people with gentleness and we can approach them with humility. Why? Because we can relate to where they are. Matter of fact, Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 is a really good picture of what it looks to be gentle and humble. And it's dealing with uh, how we would uh, encourage someone around us who's stumbled in a sin issue or a poor decision or something that could be called foolishness. Galatians 6.1 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression or sin, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. What Paul writes to the church in Galatia is simply this. As he begins chapter 6, he goes, Look, I want you to know that if you're spiritual and you walk in a manner worthy of which you've been called, then he goes, people will know that by the way you restore each other in gentleness. 
It's one thing to have, have a too high of a view of yourself and think everything else and everyone else is beneath you. But what if you had a high view of God, a low view of yourself, and you began to realize that everyone else in this room is just like you and me, but with Christ, we can restore one another, encourage one another, and spur each other on towards love and good deeds, as Hebrews 10 says. And so that's what Paul is talking about. So he says, with all humility and with all gentleness, and then also with patience, with long suffering. He goes, be slow to avenge one another and bear with one another in love. And so there, that word patience literally means that you would, um, in a sense, uh, endure with long patience. It's the same thing that our kids' ministry has, has recently learned that we should um, exude the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Uh, that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, and patience. It's, it's kindness, it's goodness, it's gentleness, it's self-control. It's all of those things. And so as we think through that, what Paul is saying something similar here is he goes, hey, listen, you should care for one another with patience, long-suffering, don't think eye for an eye or tooth for a tooth, but bear with one another. And he uses that word in the Greek, bear with one another, to, to strengthen or to support, uh, to hold up someone. And so think of someone who, um, in a sense, is tired and, and they're kind of about to lean over. Paul goes, no, no, I want you to bear with them or, in a sense, I want you to firmly support them. And you do that in love. Paul will use this same word in the Greek several times. And you might wonder, well, how do we strongly support or encourage? Or how do we keep somebody from falling over? And, and uh, he gives us several examples. And so he goes, hey, look, we should um, be patient with one another and bear with one another in love as it results to persecution. We should do that against sin and foolishness. We should do that as we think about sound doctrine. We should do that as we exhort and encourage one another. We should even do that as we think about forgiveness. And so Paul's giving us many reasons, and he says, we walk in a manner worthy of which we've been called, and we do that with humility, with tender-hearted care for one another. We, we do that in a loving way as we think through patience and through bearing one another's burdens in a sense. And then verse 3, he says, And all the while we are eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That word eager literally uh, is the word in the Greek that just says um, that you and I are diligent. Like we are continually to watch what it is that we're eager to do. And we should be eager, as Paul says, to maintain unity. Now, when I think about that, I think about the things that I'm eager to do or the things that uh, the church is eager to do. And I don't know about you, but there's many of you that you are eager um, to do ministry and you're eager uh, to do things outside of ministry or maybe you even equate those to ministry. Paul uses this same word in talking about how he was eager to feed the poor. And so we might be eager to feed the poor. We might be eager uh, to do ministry or to be a part of a program or to be a part of some sort of ministry that's taking place. Uh, we might be um, eager to encourage one another in the faith. We might be eager uh, to live for Christ. There's a lot of things that we're eager to do. But here's what I want you to realize is that what he says is that we should be eager 
to pursue unity, which is literally uh, the word hypnotes, which means to have a unity or an agreement on, uh, in the spirit of the bond of peace. And so when you think about peace, it means that as you have unity, that you're not striving against one another, you're not wreaking havoc or in war with one another, there's not divisiveness, there's not dissension, there's not malice, there's not slander. And so what Paul is saying, he goes, hey, if you want people to know that you're walking in a manner worthy of the call, he goes, people ought to be able to see characteristics about your life. He says they ought to be able to say, see humility, gentleness, patience, and long-suffering. They ought to be able to see how you relate to one another as you bear and hold up one another in love. And he says, and they'll see it by the way you are eager, how you express diligence in making sure that unity is of utmost importance. And when you start thinking about that, I think about the the church. And I think oftentimes in the church, we are so eager to represent ourselves through ministry And yet God's calling us not to represent ourselves through ministry. It's not about having the best student ministry, the best kids ministry, the best recovery ministry, the best marriage ministry, the best premarital ministry. It's not about having the best ministry to to moms or to men. Uh, It's not about having the best ministry to those outside of our church as a bridge to get them in the church. The best ministry we have and the one that Paul says we should be eager to maintain is the ministry of unity in the body. So what we ought to not be eager to do is to pick a fight. We shouldn't be eager to pick a fight or get into an argument. We shouldn't be eager to divide ourselves into two different teams because really what we see later on here in a few minutes in verse 6 is that there is not two teams. There's one body. And so when you think about there being one body, here's what you need to know, church, lean in with me, is that there's not two sides within the church. I mean, think about it for just a second. Christ says there's one body. So if there's one body, there's not two sides. The reason that there's one body is because there are two sides, but the two sides shouldn't be within the church. Matter of fact, the two sides are God versus the darkness. Light overcomes darkness, good over evil. And so what happens is when we're eager to pick a fight rather than eager to maintain unity in the spirit of the bond of peace, then guess what? We are bringing about havoc in all of eternity. We are bringing about division as opposed to being light versus darkness. We shouldn't be eager to pick a fight. We shouldn't be eager to pick on leadership. We shouldn't be eager to pick a ministry over unity. At the end of the day, what we should be eager to do is to pursue unity more than we are eager to do anything else. At the end of the day, what Paul is trying to help the church in Ephesus know, people will know that you are the church, the real deal, by the way you maintain your unity, by the way you treat one another in your humbleness, in your tenderness, in your kind-heartedness, in your love towards one another, they'll know that you are in harmony together. They'll know that you are stranded together and that you're not um, trying to be broken apart. 
Matter of fact, Paul writes to the church in Colossae in, in chapter 3. He says it this way in verses 12 and following. He says, I want you to put on then as God's chosen ones, holy, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so must also you forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, in which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. He goes on, he says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And so what Paul basically says here is the very thing that he says to the church in Ephesus. He says to the church in Colossae, he goes, Hey, Colossians, listen. Walk in a manner worthy of which you've been called. As a prisoner of the gospel myself, he goes, I'm urging you to live as God's chosen ones, people of God. Be bondservants, be heirs, be partakers, be members of his body. Hey, and then don't forget to put on these characteristics. And what does he say? He goes, have compassionate hearts. Be kind, be humble, be meek, be patient, bear with one another. Listen, that's what Paul is saying to the church in Ephesus. He's going, hey, listen, the way that you love one another, the way you dwell in unity, people will know that you are something special. And I don't know about you, but I want you to realize that when we are at odds with one another, when we're when we're backbiting, when we're slandering, when we're taking part in malicious talk, when we're using hurtful words, whether it's in person or on social media, when we're trashing the church, regardless if it's church locally or if it's big C church globally, when we're trashing one another and we're not careful to watch, what we need to know is, is that we're creating division in the body. And here's what you need to know Hear this church, lean in with me. Division in the body never begins with those who are fully devoted to Jesus Christ. Think about that for just a second. Division in the body never begins because you and I are fully devoted to Jesus Christ. Matter of fact, here is your warning of the day. If you continue to look down on others and you slander them with your word because you have too high of a view of yourself, it is a good, good picture that your heart is not aligned with that of our Savior. If you are malicious with your words, if you are judgmental with your mind, if you are harsh in your actions, it is a great depiction that you are not in full devotion and you are not in one accord with our Savior. And Paul goes on and he helps us understand why that would be. And he says, because there is one body. And so in verse 4, he says the reason that we ought to be maintaining unity in the Spirit and the bond of peace is because we are one body. And there is one Spirit. And just as you were called to that one hope, that belongs to your call. 
And he goes on in verse 5, and he says there's one Lord, there's one faith, there's one baptism. In verse 6, he says there's one God, and there's Father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. And so what he's basically giving us a picture of as he wraps this up, he goes, listen, our foolish words, our hurtful actions, our high view of ourselves, and a low view of all of other people in humanity is not of God. Matter of fact, if we want the view of God, we need to know that there is one body. One body is all the joints, all the ligaments working together. It is the bride of Christ being who she is supposed to be. It is the body functioning the way the body should function. And listen, as the body of Christ and the bride of the bridegroom, the faithful in Jesus, we are in a battle not against ourselves, but we are in a battle, Ephesians 6, against the principalities and about the power of this dark world. We are in a battle of good versus evil. And so how is it that oftentimes the good claims to be in a battle with good? It cannot be. And so what we've got to be is one body working in line with our hope. And what is our hope? Our hope is revealed in the following verses. Our hope is found and ultimately solidified in the Trinity. Look at the Trinity that's there. Our hope and the solidification of our body, the church, the bride of Christ, the people, the members of this body is that there is one Spirit, and there is one Lord, and there's one Father over all and in all. And so there's the Trinity. The Trinity manifests itself in three persons. The Father, the Son, our Lord, and the Holy Spirit. Paul says that's where unity is maintained. Unity is not maintained in our self. It's not maintained in our religious actions. Unity is not maintained in in what we think. Unity is maintained as we have unity with the bond of peace, and ultimately we know who the peace giver is. He goes, it is maintained when you know the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And here's what God wants us to be a part of. He wants us to be united with Him and then united together. And listen, there's two ways for us ultimately to be unified. Um, and there's two ways for matter to be unified. And so one of those is to be frozen together, or the other one is to be melted or, or welded together. And so I don't know about you, but I don't think God's intending the church to be frozen together in a, uh, a sea of paralysis. What I think is that he wants it to be melted and, and submerged and welded together so that we are strong and that we go out with courageous intensity and we maintain unity humility, gentleness, long-suffering for the glory of God and those around us. And so you go, well, how do we do that? And here's how we do it. We maintain exactly what God has maintained through the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so when you think about the Trinity, there's a handful of things that I think come to mind. One is that with the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, there is an incredible amount of diversity. They are all different. The Father is the master architect. He's the planner. The Son is the creator and the recreator. He's the one who dies on the cross for our sin problem. The Spirit is the one who's the suitable helper. He's the comforter. He's the Holy Spirit. He's the one who comes and He aids us and He lives in us. And so you have the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit all submitting to one another, though they are completely diverse. They're different. 
They have different roles. And yet with their different roles, what's incredible is there is an, an awesome amount of order. And here's why. Because God is a God of order. God is not a God of confusion. God does not live in the dark, 1 John 1. God lives in the light. And so there is order with God, yet they're distinct in roles. There is not confusion. There is unity. That's what's incredible. They are one, humbly submitting to one another, humbly being unified together, welded together. They are one. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, diverse with great order, distinct in their roles, yet they have one purpose, and that is to reconcile mankind to God. And that's what the purpose of the church is. And what's incredible is, is that if you're not careful, you'll miss what he's calling us to. He's calling us not to a union, but to unity. You can have a union and not have unity. That's why God says marriage is so important. There's a union of marriage, but just because you get married doesn't mean that you celebrate your differences. It doesn't mean that you submit to one another in glad tidings and that ultimately you want to display the glory of God in your marriage. A union is different than unity. And so God says, I want marriages to be a picture of all the things that the Trinity is. Though you're diverse, male, female, though you're made uh, in my image and there's distinct differences, I want there to be order. I don't want people to look at your marriage and see confusion. I want them to see the picture of God's grace, a man trying to be the picture of Jesus, a woman being a picture of the faithful bride. I want there to be oneness and unity and all of that. He goes, that's what I want. And a union doesn't produce that. Matter of fact, you may wonder, well, what do you mean by a union doesn't produce unity? Well, it's the same with the church. Just because you make yourself a member of the body by signing some membership form or walking an aisle in a particular place, just because you unite yourself together in union doesn't mean that you're going to be committed to unity. Matter of fact, you could take two cats, tie their tails together, throw them over the top of clothesline, and you'll notice that there's a union, but when they get on the other side of that clothesline, there's not going to be a unity. And so you can have union without unity, but here's what God's calling us to do, is to be unified, and that's our goal. And so here is the message of this text. Paul says, don't miss out and confuse the fact that you go to a church or you have unioned yourself with something or someone or someplace with unity. Because if you do not exude the character of God, if you're not eager, as eager to maintain unity as you are to eager to maintain a place or a status in the body for yourself, then you're missing it. And so what I want you to realize is that the message of unity is far more important than anything else we do in this place. Edgewood, listen, can I just tell you real quickly, one of the things we need to know and we need to embrace is that while the building is getting super close to being completed, one of the things we don't want people to be attracted to the body here at Stone Point for is because we're going to have a nice building or because eventually we're going to have a student ministry in the community or eventually we're going to offer 
for uh, other ministries in the community. Listen, I don't want people coming and seeing what we have in buildings or ministries. I want that community, I want that city, I want our county to see what we have in Christ. And I want them to know that we love one another well, that we don't backbite, we don't connive, that we work out our challenges with one another, we spur each other on, we admonish and exhort one another. We're not afraid of the hard conversation, but we're going to do it in love. And we may always agree, but at the end of the day, we're going to unite ourselves. And it's not going to just be people who sit in chairs and we deal with one another, but we're going to sit in chairs and we're going to worship with one another because we are called to one Lord. We have one faith, we have one hope, we have one call, and we have one what? Lord. He is God. He is the Son. He is the Father. He is the Holy Spirit. He is the one who aids us as we make light in the darkness. And I pray that we'll know that, embrace that, and live that out in our lives. And so let me just close with this quote from A.W. Tozer in his book called The Pursuit of God. And he says, Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other. They are of one accord by being tuned, not to each other, but to another standard in which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers meeting together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. The standard of unity is not our union together, but it is our high calling to be unified in Christ, being the display of His bride. Just as God displays Himself in unity, the church displays Himself in itself in unity and our marriages ought to display themselves in unity church may we be the light that shines in the darkness may we exude a high view of god a small view of us and may we love and spur one another on well let me pray for us heavenly father i thank you for this message God, I pray that we would know that our chief aim and our primary goal for existence is to be reconciled to you and to reconcile others to you. I pray that you would help us to bear with one another well, that in humility and with gentleness, that we would bear with one another, that we would be patient and kind with one another, that we would show love to one another, that we would help each other stand firm. I pray that we would be eager, more eager to do ministry. We would be more eager to, to maintain unity. And I pray that we, would, that we would be your people. That you would bind things together in us. That as people look at this body, they would see the perfect harmony that exists in knowing Jesus. Embracing your call, and celebrating the Lord that we have, the calling, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father and all. God, you are over all, you're through all, you're in all, and you are worthy because all of it belongs to you. 
In Jesus' name we pray, amen.